just like to make a little correction. I guess we've been announcing that the Apologetics Conference is on the 18th, but it's actually March 11th. March 11th. I think that's right. Am I right this time? Okay, yeah. And it's on the, you know, the kingdom of God. And, um, you know, just a little encouragement for your attendance in that. I mean, you, you see the kingdom of God mentioned quite a bit in the Bible. It's almost as if the entire Old Testament is a big lesson on what the kingdom of God in the New Testament is going to look like in the Old Testament with all the kings, right? And then Jesus comes, and what does he teach on almost immediately, right? The kingdom of God is like this, and you've got this. But if somebody were to ask you, really specifically, when the Bible talks about the kingdom of God, what is it? Would you be able to answer that question? I'll I'll bet you it would be a tougher question to answer than you realize. And then you get into, well, if the kingdom of God is this, what kind of effect should it have upon the entire world, if, if any at all? So these are questions that we're going to seek to, uh, to identify and answer uh, during that conference. But right now, we are looking at Revelation. Um, I've entitled this portion, The Mystery Finished. It's Revelation 10, verses 1 through 7. Hear now the word of God. I saw still another mighty angel coming down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was on his head. His face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. He had a little book open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea, and his left foot on the land. And he cried out with a loud voice, as when a lion roars. When he cried out, seven thunders uttered their voices. Now when the seven thunders uttered their voices, I was about to write. But I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Seal up the things which the seven thunders uttered and do not write them. The angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised up his hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that are in it, the earth and the things that are in it, and the sea and the things that are in it, that there should be delay no longer. But in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, when he was about to sound, the mystery of God would be finished, as he declared to his servants and the prophets. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do pray as we examine such intense words here in the imagery and the symbols designed to very much get our attentions in terms of the power of the living God. We do pray that we would learn things of you. We would come to understand, Father, the course of history that you've set in motion, that we might understand our place in it. We do pray at the same time that we would be comforted, knowing that we belong to you, that we are in fact the children of that living God who created all things. And so we do pray that as we examine this, we would always do it with an eye on the cross, the blood of Christ, which brings us favorably into your presence. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the world, the flesh, and the enemy, and by the enemy I'm talking about Satan and his demons, are in continual assault upon the church. It's a battle. And one of the means by which this takes place is by convincing the church, convincing you, convincing me, convincing the elders and the deacons, that our prime directive, the main reason that we're here, is social justice. Pulpits are hijacked, and the gospel is slowly displaced by an emphasis on current cultural needs, current cultural trends, some biblical, some not. This isn't anything new. We're at one of those, there's nothing new under the sun moments. History is littered with churches who have displaced the gospel altogether in their efforts, not to bring us to heaven by the blood of Christ, 
but to bring heaven to us via a Christless human movement or political maneuvering. It, it has been stated just that way. Let's not worry so much about getting to heaven, but let's get heaven to us. And if Jesus needs to be displaced in this, so be it. An older term for this is called liberation theology. Like I said, there's nothing new under the sun. It's good for us to understand things like this when they creep up, because if we don't understand them when they creep up, we're not going to see them when they creep in again. Liberation theology is kind of making its way back into the churches today, but it's nothing new. John Frame, I think, offers a very brief and valuable definition of liberation theology. He says, the theology of liberation is a combination of Marxist philosophy with certain biblical motifs. It argues that we should reconstruct the whole of Christian theology by seeing it through the axis of the oppressor and the oppressed. Well, anybody who has their ear to the ground regarding certain movements in today's culture and churches will certainly find this familiar. Feminist issues, racial movements, gender controversies, they abound. I mean, you can't turn on your radio, you can't in any way go upon social media without seeing these things up front and center. And the world is determined to do something about it. And preferably do something about it without Christ. Or at least a sidelined Christ. Or a redefined Christ. Oh yeah, you want Jesus in the movement? Fine, but we need to redefine him. Or at least put him in the shadows for a bit while we take care of business. The advocates of these movements are convinced that they are on the right side of history and that the world will simply be a better place if they have their way. I have to say, though, in one respect, they might be filling a gap. You know, that, that vacuum that nature abhors. I was talking to one of uh, our uh, teaching elders at Presbytery this last week. Presbytery we had a couple weeks ago, one of the ones, one of our presbyters, he's older than I am, he's been, one of the reasons we're in this denomination is because of his influence, a wonderful, godly man who's been in the ministry many, many years. And he was talking about a conversation he was having with an older professor who's no longer with us, and I believe a Christian man. But they, but this professor was promoting a brand of Christianity that removed the influence of the church from the culture. He was not into that. He was against Christianizing the nations and culture wars and all that, you know, and not, to be sure there are times when that can get over the top and it can, as I said a minute ago, it can take over the pulpits. But my friend, the pastor, talked to, he was talking to me and one other guy about this conversation he had had with this professor. And the conversation he had with the professor was, I understand that you want to protect the gospel in terms of it becoming kind of a social justice movement. But you don't seem to be offering an alternative. I mean, we are citizens. There's got to be something that we are doing as Christians that's affecting the world in which we live. And, and whatever this professor was offering, and if I said his name, you might know it. If you're a student, you would for sure know it. But my pastor friend was going, you're, you're basically creating a vacuum. You're saying, don't do this, but you're not offering anything instead. Certainly, there are issues in every culture. And certainly, the church, or more specifically, Jesus Christ, should have an answer to those issues. And he does. We are studying the Revelation. This is a, a letter 
written just so you understand. And this isn't just historical analysis, this is biblical analysis. We are studying a letter written at a time when human rights were a fantasy. This idea of human rights. Racism, as it's called, at its worst. And women were often just considered property. That is the cultural context in which the Revelation is written. Slavery was normal. Does Jesus address these things? Should should we as Christians have some type of opinion, some type of worldview that goes after these things? I think we should. But it doesn't come by displacing Christ. It comes by placing Christ front and center. The true Christ in terms of the true new covenant. Now, hopefully you'll see why I open with this. Because I think what we'll see, at least in this passage, one of the things we'll see is the true Christian answer to these types of problems. And I would argue, without Christ, these problems will never be answered. Verse 1, I saw still another mighty angel coming down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was on his head. His face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. Well, like many figures in Revelation, there's a lot of speculation as to who this mighty angel might be. And I have to say, you know, just in full disclosure, I don't think it can be said with absolute certainty who this angel is. But as I examine this, and I'm not the only one, it was, there are different camps that hold different views. Some people think it's Michael or somebody else. But this description at least led me to conclude that this angel is Christ himself. Now, you might want to go, well, Pastor Paul, Jesus is not an angel, but recognizing the word angel means messenger, and in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord is a term often used to describe the pre-incarnate Christ, Christ before he was made flesh. So it is okay to read your Bibles in such a way as to recognize that Jesus is sometimes called a king or a prophet, sometimes he's called a priest, and sometimes he's called an angel. But you might want to ask, why, why did I draw that conclusion? Well, I drew that conclusion because when we read that his face was like the sun, that his feet like pillars of fire, these descriptions are taken almost word for word out of chapter 1, where clearly it is Christ who's being described. And then if we add clothed with a cloud and a rainbow on his head, and if we look at Psalm 104, Verse 3 in Revelation 4.3, we recognize, the, if you will, the divine nature of those types of attributes. But I will say this, what I'm about to say doesn't absolutely necessitate that it be Christ, but I do think that it is. We are given the image of this angel descending from heaven. It's almost as if John, remember John was caught up into heaven And now it's as if John is viewing this from the earth. He's viewing the angel from the vantage point of earth. And we are told here, and I want to ignore this, that he is a mighty angel. So that word is put in there. Why? I think what we have to recognize is that there's nothing casual about this coming. Remember we had talked earlier about there are various types of comings of Christ. Not every coming of Christ is the second coming. This coming of Christ is not the second coming. At the same time, we have to recognize that there is something awe-inspiring about this coming. Remember this, that when John, the Apostle John, saw, if in fact this is Christ, in chapter 1, under this description, what was his response? He fell down as if dead. So now, once again, he is seeing this powerful, mighty, and gigantic angel. And I think it's to be conveyed to us that we're observing something immensely powerful. 
Well, the glory of Christ, even as an advocate, even if I'm viewing him as on my side, yields a holy fear. If you don't have it, or if you don't realize the need for it, if you're dismissive of it, then you, you, are, you have a very truncated idea of the glory of the living God. I mean, if you don't have it, you, you've got to view it as a character flaw, a spiritual character flaw that needs to be remedied, that we need to have a more august understanding, a holy, godly, reverential fear of God. Take heed that it is one of the great indictments against the people when it is said of them, we see in Romans chapter 3, verse 18, that there is no fear of God in their eyes. These social issues, and you can add to the list, I'm firmly convinced that until there is a holy fear of God in the eyes of people, those social issues are just going to grow. We, have, we will not answer those issues without an eye to the power and the might and the glory and the grace of the risen Savior. That is the answer. Verse 2. He had a little book open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. So now, just, you know, for your own notes in my home group, take note of this, because I may ask you this during our home group time. <laughs> we are introduced to a new source of prophecy, right? A little book. Remember, we had a, we had a seven-sealed scroll, and, you know, which, you know, we start opening that, and we end up in trumpets. But we're going to see, really, in chapter 11, verse 15, this other prophecy. So we've got this other prophecy that's going to be coming our way soon. And so that's in the future, and we'll get into more detail on that little open book in future messages. I, I want to stay within the context of the seven verses we're looking at today. So even staying within these seven verses, we have to recognize this. And I think it just bears saying that God has chosen to communicate with us through a book. Now, I recognize this is a prophecy, and this is no ordinary book. He's going to eat it, and it's going to taste a certain way in his mouth and feel different in his stomach and, and so forth. But we need to recognize as Christians that God has chosen to reveal himself to us through a book. Now, that doesn't mean I don't believe in general revelation and that God through the heavens declares that he is. But when it gets right down to it, special revelation, that is God's self-revelation, self uh, his self-disclosure is something that he has determined to reveal to us in a book. So many times in Jesus' instruction, he opens with these words. Have you not read? Have you not read? Even this morning when I was looking something else up that I was thinking about adding to the sermon, I looked up the word written. Just in First and Second Corinthians, I looked up the word written. And it was there like 34 times or something. That, that, this idea that God has chosen to, to reveal himself to us through the written word. There is, my friends, an objectivity to the written word that protects us. Uh, that's why we have contracts, right? We have contracts with people, even our closest friends, so that there's clarity in terms of what agreement we've made. You, you know, I mean, how many of us have kind of said, well, that's not what you said. Well, that's not what you said. What do we do? We're, we look for the text. Now, don't tell me, you know, I have the text right here. Look at it. Well, we've got God's holy text. I think there is great wisdom in the words of the Westminster Confession when it teaches regarding God's self-revelation that God, I quote, for the better preserving and propagating of the truth and for the more sure establishment and comfort of the church against the corruption of the flesh and the malice of Satan and of the world to commit the same, and the antecedent to that is, the same is his, his holy 
self-revelation. Holy unto writing. He is, in, in, in days past, prior to the new covenant, God spoke to us through prophets and angels and so forth. And then he spoke to us through apostles. And then there came a time, as, these, as the divines of Westminster say, where he committed it wholly unto writing, what we call the Bible. Why? Which maketh the holy scripture to be most necessary. Those former ways of God's revealing his will unto his people now being ceased. Why? Because of the corruption of the flesh. I have to say, one of the phrases that I oftentimes hear Christians use that makes me a little uncomfortable are, are phrases like, I felt led. Our God told me. Now, I, I, I recognize that in a very secondary sense, those things might be true. But we got to be careful not to use those phrases as if somehow they're equivalent to the Word of God. Now, we're going to talk more about this little book in another message. But this portion of the text does tell us that this angel, holding this book, sets his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. I mean, this angel is a colossal figure. That's the image we're getting here. If you, if you, you know, if you wanted to study this in detail, you would come to realize that the, the land and the sea, oftentimes in the Old Testament, was referring to Israel versus other nations and so forth. The image we're getting here, though, is this angel with one foot on the land and one foot on the sea, anticipating a more international prophecy, which will be given. It's a separate, that it's a separate, separate prophecy and international is indicated in verse 11 when John is told, and he said to me, you must prophesy what? Again. Okay, so we've got another separate prophecy. And then we see this about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings, which leads me to say this is more international. This, the first one was addressing mainly Israel, and the second one's going to be more international in nature. In, uh, when we're examining potential pastors, one of the questions we ask them, you know, as I mentioned a little while ago, would you be able to give an answer regarding the kingdom of God and what it is, what it is not, what its influence is? One of the questions we ask young pastors or, you know, to-be pastors, and sometimes they don't get it right, and if they don't get it right, those of you who are in seminary here, and I know there are a few, if they don't get this right, they won't get sustained. That's a fancy way of saying they'll fail. <laughs> and that is, what is new about the new covenant? What is new about the new covenant? Well, there are many things in, that, in many forms of that answer. You know, one is that the old covenant presented Christ through images and foreshadows and types and these types of things, lambs. But one of the things that's new about the new covenant that I think is important to the text here is that the new covenant is international in nature. The old covenant, you went to Israel. The new covenant was go and make disciples of all nations. That is a big distinction between the old covenant and the new covenant. And I think it comes into play as we get to the end of this a passage of, of Scripture. Recognizing this, though, we've got this colossal figure, one foot on the ocean, one foot on the land, holding this book that is going to be, you know, prophesied in chapter, starting in chapter 11, verse 15. And we have this figure given to the church when the church was minuscule. I mean, sometimes we um, become discouraged at the lack of a robust faith by which we're surrounded. I don't know about you, but I do. When I, when I, when I look at, and I'll occasionally look at, top ten ministries in America, and, I'm, you know, and I don't want to be mean-spirited or uncharitable, but so oftentimes I would say it's quite simple to realize that eight of the top ten maybe aren't Christian ministries at all. They're aberrant heresies. And I, I find that discouraging you know, and sometimes I'll go to Renewing Your Mind and listen to R.C. Sproul, just like to breathe a little bit. And then the Lord took R.C. home, and I'm like, okay, well, I, I, it's nice to have and be surrounded by people who encourage you in the faith. 
But we've got to be careful not to put any person too highly in that category. And what John seems to be doing here via the Holy Spirit is going, even though you're minuscule, your Lord has got one foot on the land and one foot on the sea. He is towering over the fares of humanity. And you need to recognize that as you embark upon whatever it is you're going to do. The days that you feel discouraged, the days that you feel exhausted, the, you know, the days that you, you get this Elijah complex, right? I and I alone am left to serve the Lord. And even there, you know, he's encouraged, right? By, no, no, I've got 7,000 who haven't bowed the knee to Baal. But we here are, should be encouraged when we recognize that we have a Savior who towers over the affairs of humanity. And now this angel speaks, verses 3 and 4. And he cried with a loud voice, As when a lion roars, when he cried out, seven thunders uttered their voices. Now when the seven thunders uttered their voices, I was about to write. But I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, seal up the things which the seven thunders uttered and do not write them. Well, first and foremost, as we read this, clearly these words are designed to convey a sense of power. The voice as of a lion I mean, we were city folk, so we don't hear lions a lot. I remember visiting, I think it was either the L.A. Zoo or San Diego Zoo, and I heard a lion. I wasn't anywhere near it, and I was like, what was that? You know, you know and then you want to go and see if you can make it roar. <laughs> don't do that, you know, <laughs> caged lion. So you've got this powerful voice that goes out, and then, if that's not enough, the response of seven thunders. Now, these seven thunders, whoever or whatever they are, utter a message which John was about to write. Now, I'll just say that I don't know who those seven thunders are, and I didn't read anybody who knew, at least in such a way as for me to share it with you, who those seven thunders are. But they utter a message that John is now about to write. So they say something that at least was intelligible to John, and John's about to write it down. Then a voice from heaven, clearly a good voice, tells John to seal up the things uttered by them and don't write them. You you look at a verse like this, and you're going, why are you telling me that you're not going to tell me something? And you know what? There's value to that. I mean, God didn't put this in the Bible just because he, you know, his editor said we need more words, you know. John has more content. But let me tell you, when I read something like that, it should help all of us. It's a lesson for those who would overly interpret and seek to convey things not given. Don't write it. I don't want that out there. Let me tell you a little bit, not to get into, there's a word called epistemology. It's a big word for the theory of knowledge. How do we know the things that we know? And when it comes to the epistemology and our relationship with God or the knowledge of God, there are, there are, I would say, broadly speaking, there are three categories. There's things that we do know, things that we don't know, and things that we can't know. All right, let me just give you a couple of verses here. Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord, our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of his law. So some things he tells us, some things he doesn't tell us. You know, in in one of the warnings Paul gave the Corinthian church was, and that's when I was looking up the word written, was don't go beyond what is written. I'm writing things to you. That in terms of the Word of God, don't go beyond that. The Word of God is the Word of God. What you say, what I am saying right now as a pastor in this pulpit is not, you know, properly speaking, the Word of God. It's only the Word of God to, to the extent that it accurately reflects that which is written in the Word of God. You, you, you need to evaluate whether or not what I'm saying is actually true, and the means by which you evaluate it is by the Word of God. And if I'm off, we have a time of Q&A when you can go, Pastor Paul, I think you're off. 
and I will very, very gently, lovingly, and nicely <laughs> tell you why I think maybe I wasn't. <laughs> but I, I ha- it's not as if I've never been. Anybody who knows the history of our church knows that we've been corrected. I mean, we were a premillennial, dispensational, semi-charismatic church started by a denomination started by Amy Semple McPherson. And now we're in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. That's like theological evolution, you know? I mean, it's like Darwinian in terms of that. But that, you know, but that only happens and it needs to continue to happen if you're willing to be corrected. That's you, that's me, that's all of us. And let me tell you something, that doesn't end in this life. That, will, that sanctification happens until the Lord brings you home. So we see, I think in this verse, there are things that we, we do know, things that we don't know. And then in Job eleven seven we read, Can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? There we have the things we can't know. The implied answer to that rhetorical question is, no, you cannot. I think, when you see the description of the attributes of God in our confession, one of the things you'll see is incomprehensible. And I remember kind of thinking, seems like a little bit of a cop-out. But I have to tell you, as time has gone on, I have found myself greatly comforted in knowing that we serve a God who is incomprehensible. But here's where we, that needs to be defined. Because if you have your, you know, your phone and you look up incomprehensible, modern dictionaries will often define incomprehensible as unintelligible, leading us to conclude with the definition of nonsense. Like if what I'm saying is unintelligible, or normally what you'll think is you're just speaking nonsense. But what incomprehensible actually means is not able to be contained. That's the actual, if you want to do the etymology of the word and go, okay, where did this word come from? Not able to be contained. You see, if something is comprehensive, it means that it includes everything. If you have the comprehensive works of William Shakespeare, you have everything that he ever wrote. And friends, there is no book or any created thing that can contain the fullness of God. And I, and I hope you, would not trust my soul in an entity that I, as a limited human creature, could fully get my arms around. Yet this passage is not addressing what we're incapable of knowing. I think we could maybe know it. John seemed to know it, right? He was about to write it down. But what God has determined that we should know is something that he's told not to convey to us. Paul apparently had a very similar experience, right? When he's, and I I have a point here I think I want to make, because when I'm reading this, I'm like, where is this bringing me in terms of uh, ministerially, right? Why is this being brought my way. Paul had an experience in 2 Corinthians 12 where he's caught up into paradise, right, into the third heaven. And when when he has that experience, we read in verse 4 of 2 Corinthians 12 that he heard things, quote, that cannot be told which man may not utter. He doesn't say which man cannot utter, but which man may not utter. All right, so Paul's there, he has an experience, and he's kind of going, these are not things that I can convey to humanity. So we don't know. But let me ask you this, can anybody tell me what the context of 2 Corinthians 12 was? What was going on where Paul was going through this issue with the thorn in the flesh? Paul had a thorn in the flesh. This is the broader context of 2 Corinthians 12. He has a thorn in the flesh. We don't really know what that is. Could have been an illness. Could have been a person. A messenger from Satan, it's called. And Paul pled repeatedly with God for it to be removed. And do you know what the answer was from God? It wasn't to remove it. The answer was, my grace is sufficient. 
My grace is sufficient. Friends, when God does not give us, as he often does not, when he does not give us the answers we want, when he does not give us the deliverance we desire, it seems to be his way of drawing us to him. I mean, you all know as well as I do, right? When you've got nothing left to offer, when you're like going, I've navigated as much as I can, I've, whatever it is, I've gone to every doctor I can go to, or, you know, I've seen counselors, or on and on and on. I'm pretty much at the end of myself. That is when we find ourselves where? On our knees. That is where we find ourselves going, God's grace is sufficient. Well, now we begin to read a message that we are called to know in verses 5 and 6. The angel, whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land, raised up his hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that are in it, the earth and the things that are in it, and the sea and the things that are in it, that there should be delay no longer. And obviously, this is an oath made to God, right? I mean, that's, that's just Old Testament language describing God created the heavens, everything in it, the earth, everything's in it, the sea, everything in it, only God. So we have this angel now swearing or taking an oath. Why would, you know, assuming this is Christ, why would he take an oath? And I, I will submit to you that when we read of our Lord taking an oath, it's not, it's not for the same reason we take oaths. You know, when a, a vow, strictly speaking, is a promise made to God, an oath is made to man be, before God. You know, when I do a wedding, these are vows. When you, when you do weddings and you're making vows, you're promising God. And why do you make the vows? Well, you make the vow because you recognize that there's going to come a time when you're not going to feel like doing it. And you're just kind of going, I'm not in the, you know, when you hear some modern vows that are just so ridiculous, you know, I promise to be with you as long as our love shall last. <laughs> don't love you anymore. Bye. You, know, you don't need to take a vow. <laughs> if that's your criteria, you don't need a vow. You need a vow if you're going to go slay the dragon, because you know that once you see the dragon, you may change your mind. <laughs> this has nothing to do with the way you think about your spouse. but <laughs> You have made a promise to God. I would submit that when Christ makes a vow, and we'll see in just a second that he, there's another place where it's clearly Christ, it is not for his benefit so that he'll do the right thing. It's for our benefit to underscore the fact that he has made a promice. And it's it, it said this way in order for you and for me to know that we should not doubt the word of God. We see similar language used in Hebrews, yielding, as it were, the solid nature of his promise to the heirs of promise. Hebrews six seventeen and 18, thus God determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of his promise, the immutability of his counsel. See who the, benefit, the beneficiaries are of this? You know, to the, it's the heirs of promise who are going to benefit from this oath made by, by God. The immutability of his counsel confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things, and I would say that's God's word and God's oath, in which it is impossible for God to lie, that we might have strong consolation. It's for our benefit who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. Now, you understand the reason for the oath. So you got this gigantic angel, right? Pledging an oath to God. But what is the oath about? That there should be delay no longer. That's what it's about. Delay of what? What are we talking about here? See, this is where Revelation can get a little confusing. Delay? Why don't you tell me what it is? Why just use the word delay? But I'll tell you, I think it doesn't take much for us to recognize this theme as we've been studying. When the martyrs prayed that God would bring his justice, what did they ask? They said, how long, O Lord? So we see kind of this time frame. They want to go, how long before you make things right and you, you bring ve your vengeance, your justice, 
How long before you kind of, you know, sort things out? They were given at that point white robes, which I think symbolized their approval before God through the blood of Christ. It's almost as if before I answer that question, just know you have peace with God. Never engage through the revelation without looking down and seeing your white robe. That is, you're clothed in Christ. This isn't just for entertainment. If we're not studying this, if I'm not preaching this in such a way as to yield in you a deeper and more profound and utter dependence upon the blood of Christ, then we're missing the mark altogether. So we see the white robes. He's like, he gives them white robes. And then he says this, rest a little longer. Just in a little while. I don't know about you, but when I read something like that, it makes me feel like it's not going to be thousands of years. It's going to be a little while. I don't know. I don't think by any definition, especially a biblical definition, a little while can be thousands of years. A little while is, I mean, you know, when I tell my wife I'll be home in a little while, if I didn't get home for a thousand years, <laughs> she'd probably want to know what happened. Right? So we have those prayers in chapter 6. The answer is, in a little while. And then in chapter 8, if you recall, we see the prayer beginning to be answered. Remember the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints? ascending before God, and then the censer filled with fire from the altar, and as it were, slammed upon the earth, and we begin to see the prayer answered. Now, we are told that the delay of this vindication would be delayed no longer. Something, as we see in verse 7, was about to be finished. So this oath is given as we're going to see in anticipation, the oath is given in anticipation of the seventh angel or the seventh trumpet. It's like right here in verse 7, it's kind of like, okay, we'll get to the seventh when the time comes, but he's, there's an allusion to it, right? Verse 7. But in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, right, that's coming up, and we'll see that in chapter 11, when he was about to sound, the mystery of God would be finished, as he declared to his servant, servants, the prophets. Now, the seventh angel, just so you know, doesn't sound until the middle of next chapter, or chapter 11, actually. No, the next chapter. Yeah, which is chapter 11. What we are learning here is that in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be finished. What mystery? Now you got that, right? A minute ago he said, what's the delay? Now, what mystery? I mean, you, you got it. That's why sometimes Revelation is so hard. It's almost like you need to know what mystery. When the Bible talks about a mystery, what's it talking about? And again, speculations are numerous. The word mystery, by the way, is almost never used in the Old Testament. Remember I said... There are over 500 allusions in Revelation to the Old Testament. But mystery is not one of them. But the word mystery is used quite regularly in the New Testament. And there are a number of ways that word mystery is used. I'm going to give you this morning a couple of ways that it's used, and then I'm going to tell you what I think he's talking about. We see that mystery is used in a very general way to describe the gospel. In Ephesians 6, 19, and 20, we see that Paul uses it in regard to marriage, right? He goes, I'm, I'm speaking a mystery. You know, he's talking about men and wife, and then he's like really talking about the church, but, you know, and he uses the word there as a mystery. He actually uses it in 1 Corinthians 15, talking about the resurrection. So we see the mystery pointing to the resurrection as well. So it's used in a number of different ways. But the majority of the time, the word mystery is used to describe how the gospel includes the Gentiles. More times than not, that's why it's used. I think, friends, we underestimate the amount of ink 
used by the Apostle Paul to convince the church that we are one new man in Christ. You start reading, I remember I was, you know, for 25 years I led a Bible study at a retirement home, mostly widows, and it was priceless and adorable. But one of the questions that they would ask would be, well, Pastor Paul, why is why does the Bible talk about circumcision so much? And I'm like, oh, man. Circumcision, sir, uncircumcision, circumcision. I'm like, I'm not really comfortable talking about that in a room full of 85-year-old women, but hey, it's in the Bible. But on and on, right? You've got this issue that Paul seems to be addressing, and if you're really looking for it, you realize it's coming up all the time. I was talking about racism. And I say as it's commonly called because it may not actually historically be the best term. There's really, you know, some people would argue there's one race, it's the human race. But recognizing there are kind of ethnicities and tribes and what have you, we can get into the definition of that. And I think there's some value to that. But we have to recognize that racism is not somehow unique to the modern era. I would argue that it's... it's it's worse throughout the course of history than it is today. Historically, I think, it was much worse. Among many people in the world, if you study your history, if you weren't part of their tribe, it wasn't as if they were like a racist against you. They didn't even view you as human. You could have been, you were like a sacrificial animal. They thought you were made of wood. They didn't view you as inherently made in the image of God with a uniquely Christian perspective that every human being is made in the image of God is not something that people kind of embrace throughout the course of human history. Jews, Gentiles, whether they're referred to as Samaritans, Greeks, Egyptians, we see that in the Bible, right? Jews, Gentiles, Greeks, Egyptians, Samaritans. Let me tell you something. They hated each other. They hated each other so much that if they had to go from point A to point B, they wouldn't walk through that city because of the contempt that they had for the people in that city, especially the Jews and the Samaritans, because the Samaritans were like these half-breeds and what have you, and that's why when Jesus would speak to the Samaritan, they were like, wait a minute, you're not even supposed to be talking to these people. And when these people, now get this right, understand this, when these people who hated each other came to faith, they brought much of that contempt right into the church. Right? I mean, you understand that, right? I don't know how to put this. Because I know for many people, your conversion experience, you were immediately sanctified entirely. I'm going to just say it as nicely as I can. Difficult people who become Christians are difficult Christians. (laughs) The way it was said to me was a way I couldn't share it here. But you get the idea, right? You're walking into the church, and now that person over there, the tribe they came from, their ethnicity, you know, the people they hung out, you all your life were taught, to hate them, and now you're sitting in church with them, and it's not as if you immediately get over it. Let me ask you, I'm going to read a portion of Scripture here, and I'm not going to exegete the whole thing. It could be its own little sermon series. But I'm going to read this. I'm going to ask you, as good students, to ask yourself, what must have been happening in this church? This would be the church at Ephesus. What must have been happening in this church in order for the Apostle Paul to write this in his letter to that church. You understand what I'm asking? Okay, the, Paul didn't write letters just out of thin air. He wasn't at home going, hey, I think I'll write a letter to the church at Ephesus. He was being made aware of a problem. Okay, I'm going to read this, and let's see if we can figure out what the problem actually is. Verses 11 through 18 of Ephesians 2. Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision, there it is, by what is called circumcision, made in the flesh by hands. I'm not going to go, I'm not going to right now. Parents, 
you take your child, your children, and you explain to them when you think it's appropriate what that is. All right, circumcision. But the G-rated is Jews, non-Jews. All right, Jews, non-Jews. All right, so once called circumcision by what is called the uncircumcision made in the flesh by hands. So he's, now he's talking to the Gentiles. That at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. By the way, the commonwealth, the, the, uh, the Greek word is politeia. What word does that sound like? Politics, right? It's a very political word. And I already mention that because people will be like, no, 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 no. We, what we have to recognize is that there's still a geopolitical uh, dimension to the covenants. And he's kind of going, no, no. They're no longer separate, even in the political sense, in the commonwealth sense. They were separate. They were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise. Not just one covenant, but the covenants of promise. Having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once uh, were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both one. Both who? Both the Jew and the Gentile. Two people who did not like each other. I guarantee you, they were sitting in different places in church. They had their little groups. Their home groups were the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians. And he's saying, he has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, which by all indications was a wall designed to separate the Jew from the Gentile. He's going, that wall is gone. Having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. Now get what's going on here. He's kind of going, there were things that marked people out as Jews. Those things are done. And he's saying that you you don't have peace with one another. But because you have peace with God, what should necessarily follow from that is peace with one another. That's his argument. You're one new man. You didn't have peace with God. Now you have peace with God. And therefore, you should have peace with one another. That's the natural flow of God's sanctifying work of his spirit. And, verse 16, that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. Again, the Jew and the Gentile. For through him... We both have access by one spirit to the Father. Okay, go, go, go to my question. Why is he writing this? I think it should be obvious. He's writing this because you had people who were kind of natural enemies of one another, who didn't like one another for various reasons that went way back into history, and now they're sitting in church together, and they don't understand that they are one new person in Christ. And for my money, that's the answer to the problems. If we lose that, and I'm not saying there there aren't other steps that can be taken, but if we lose that, this idea of addressing social issues is going to just fall on not just deaf ears, it's going to fall on dead ears. Let me ask you this. Would it be possible for any Christian to walk away from that message? If you were at the church of Ephesus, Could you read what Paul just wrote and walk out saying, but you know what, there are still promises I get that you don't get. I, I, as a Jewish Christian, have promises that don't belong to you. I I can't in any conceivable way read what we just read and have any person in that church talk to each other in such a way as to go, you know what, though, Paul left a few things out. In a geopolitical sense, there are promises made to us that aren't made to you. Now, you might be asking, Pastor Paul, why are you emphasizing this right now? I'm emphasizing this because we, and by we, I'm talking about modern Western evangelicalism over the last 200 years, have created and popularized a system that does exactly that. 
We have popularized a system that separates people based upon their ethnicity. We are telling a whole group of people that based upon their geopolitical connection and the blood that flows through their veins, that they somehow have a special place with God. And I can't think of anything more negligent than telling that to a person. Telling a person who is outside of Christ that they are in fact the light of the world or God's chosen people. The wall of separation of which Paul writes, I I would argue, has been rebuilt by those who seek to place Christians or non-Christians for that matter who are of one ethnicity in an entirely different category than another group of people of another ethnicity. There is neither Jew nor Greek. That's what we've done. If this difficulty, now getting back now, you got a church, it's a problem in the church, right? If Going back to Revelation, just so you understand, if I ask you the question, what is the mystery? The mystery is that the new covenant would be of an international nature, right? That the kingdom of God is going to be taken away from Israel and given to a, a, a people bearing the fruit thereof, international in nature. That's the mystery. That's what Paul says over and over is the mystery. Now, get this. If it is difficult within the church, if you've got this kind of dissension within the church, how much worse outside the church? If Christians are having a hard time accepting one another, how much worse the culture by which they're surrounded by a people who've rejected Christ? The Jewish priests had bowed the knee to Caesar. Right? Pilate says, shall I crucify your king? And what did they say? We have no king but Caesar. And I would argue that that was the mark of the beast tattooed upon their hearts. And these people, along with the Roman Empire, the Romans, killed Jesus. And now, in Revelation, they're continuing to kill those who follow Jesus. But what we're reading in Revelation is that Jesus has one foot on the land, and one foot on the sea, and he is going to bring low those oppressors and persecutors of his people. That is the comfort that these seven churches were to, were to extract from this message. I mean, going back to the Old Testament, he who is in the heavens laughs. Like the, it's this laughter of derision. Let the, let the kings of the earth take notice. There is a God in heaven who has promised to protect his people. You see, the early persecutors of the church would have the Great Commission end there. But it would not be the Great Commission that would be halted. It would be both the operations of the temple and the Roman Empire that would be halted. And we need, as Christians, to recognize that God has made an oath to do this. He has promised to do this. And over and against, you know, the popular men's conferences that, I don't know if they even still exist, when God makes a promise, he keeps it because he and he alone is the promise keeper. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that the knowledge that we are in the hands of the living God and that your Son has made an oath to love and redeem and protect us would yield in us, as we have read over and over in the Revelation, a heart that would persevere and seek to overcome. Help us, Father, not to seek to battle the difficulties in this world, the social and cultural issues apart from Christ. It's like having a gun with no bullets. Help us to recognize that, in fact, the answer to all of these issues is found first and foremost in the atoning blood of Christ who makes those who would naturally, historically, be at enmity with one another one new person 
And may, Father, this be true throughout the entire world by the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.